Okay, move out. You're listening to the Valor Podcast with Nick Lehman, a show highlighting the people who defend the United States of America and those who support them. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello and welcome to the Valor Podcast. This episode, we're going to take the simple blow-off question of Hey, how are you doing? And make it relevant again in society. But more on that in a minute. First, I want to thank our show sponsor, Booyah Media. They helped us with our website and online support. You can see their work at booyahmedia.com. That's booyahmedia.com. Trauma can come in many shapes, forms, and levels. And in some instances, it doesn't just hit civilians, but also hits our service members and veterans. Our guest today is Joshua Mance who is a West Point graduate and served in the U.S. Army in the 18th Scout Platoon. He is the author of the book, The Beauty of the Darker Soul, Overcoming Trauma Through the Power of Human Connection. Joshua, it's a great honor and privilege to have you on the Valor Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Nick. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, yeah, definitely. So tell me a little bit about your, what made you serve in the Army and what, you know, what made you, uh, take the call, the oath of office or the oath of, uh, enlistment, so to speak? Well, it's a good question. You know, I, I, I grew up in a, a family of military and, and police and I, you know, I'd say my, my stepfather planted the seed in my mind when I was probably 10 or 12 years old about going to, uh, going to West Point. And I was locked onto that ever, ever since. Um, so, you know, I went straight from high school to the academy, and, and uh, that was in 2001. And our, our freshman year, uh, 9-11 happened. Um, it really changed the culture of the academy significantly. Uh, there was a, a much more serious tone uh, kind, of, kind of took over the Corps of Cadets. And it was the first time where we were uh, knowingly... Uh, fulfilling our commitment at West Point, knowing that we were going to uh, lead troops in, in combat uh, in, the, in the war against terror. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that has to be a, quite a somber, almost, wow, we just got punched in the face, and now we're going to be leading some, some men into battle here pretty soon. You know, it, it was, um, that, that was a part of it. Um, I, I, I'd say even more significantly, it was... You know, graduating from the academy didn't feel like an accomplishment. You know, it's for the the four years that we were there, it was incredibly difficult to uh, not drop out of the academy and go join the fight downrange. You know, I I had, uh, you know, for example, I one of my best friends in high school was killed uh, in Baghdad. He enlisted, went straight to the infantry and, and, you know, I went to the academy. Um, and I, I got a call one night I was, as I was working on a history report at, at the academy that he was killed. And, you know, it, it, was, it was almost like this overwhelming guilt, uh, this nagging sense of guilt to, about being in this academic environment versus being downrange. Uh, and it was, it was really just through the, the mentors I had in my life that um, really kind of convinced me to stay and, and, and that I'd be more effective if I, if I completed that program and, and you know, join the fight later on. 
Definitely. And so you graduated uh, 2005, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And then what what happened after that? Did Were you uh, sent off to uh, scout school and all that? You know, basically, there's uh, about a year of, of infantry-specific training uh, at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, and then after that, I was sent to Fort Hood, uh, Texas, met my, met my infantry platoon at the time, uh, and then deployed with them not three months later uh, d- during the surge to Baghdad. Yeah, that, that surge, I mean, is pretty incredible because that, that was a lot of boots on the ground and then the, the warfare tactics changed too. It wasn't we were invading a country. Now it was almost you didn't know who the enemy was. Yeah, you're, you're right on. That, that um, <clears throat> particularly at that time, uh, you know, the, the, the surge, we, we noticed a very deliberate shift to counterinsurgency operations. Uh, and, and counterinsurgency is, is really considered to be the graduate level of warfare by, by many because of its complexity. Um, you know, you, you certainly have to remain the tactical expert. You have to be able to turn that switch on in a, in a split second if needed. But the crux of that fight comes down to building relationships with the local population, uh, understanding their inherent needs and, and finding ways to support them so they can, uh, you know, be successful on their own. The, the challenge is that when you're, when you're doing that in the face of, uh, a constant danger, a constant threat for your life, uh, it, it can be very difficult to see the strategic value of what your actions are. Uh, and, and kind of specifically as an example, what I mean by that is, is you know, the as you said, it's hard to know who the enemy is. Um, you know, they're, they're wearing plain clothes, they're blended into the population. And, you know, sometimes in, insurgent teams will uh, engage American soldiers in hopes that we fire back and kill innocent people by accident and, and collateral damage. So you can imagine as a as a young kid, uh, you know, if my buddy was just killed next to me by an improvised explosive device, I have to have the discipline to not fire back and understand the strategic importance of, of doing that. So counterinsurgency can really be a a breeding ground for moral wounds if if people do not understand why uh, they're they're participating in that fight and, and what the purpose of it is. Yeah, and I mean not to dig deep on the the title of the book, but darker souls. I mean, that, how darker can you get when you're in a combat situation and you know the American forces are trying to win the hearts and minds, and then. You don't know if what this guy's heart is, or you know if this tribal elder or, or neighborhood uh, sheik is is going to turn on you in an instant and uh, send the bad guys after you guys. Well, you know that's um, <clears throat> it's really just like anywhere else in the world. You know what what I've what I've noticed is uh, you know look in in in. in in Baghdad, I saw sheikhs hanging out with priests. I saw Sunni hanging out with Shia. Um, I, I, I really think the religious uh, connotation of this war is, is, is really overshadowed by a very small group of, of extremists uh, who terrorize and, and torture the local population and coerce them into doing things that they, they wouldn't otherwise do. You know, and it's, it's 
people are people wherever you go in the world. And, you know, the, the number one trait that a counterinsurgent force can have to be successful is empathy. You know, you've got to inherently understand the uh, the situation and the, and the needs of the, of the the local population, and that, that can be very difficult to do. But it's it's like you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, the the bottom pillar of that is really the physiological needs: food, water, air, shelter. And if you don't have things like that, you know, it, it's it's very difficult to achieve anything beyond it. You know, I mean, just put yourself in the shoes of somebody in the Middle East. If your child was literally starving to death, was literally dying of thirst, and they were on their deathbed, you know, to what extent would you go to keep them alive? You know, would you take the $20 payment from the insurgent to put the IED out on the side of the road? I, I, I would probably take that deal if I didn't have any other choice. So, it, it, you know... It, you really have to understand the the um, kind of the situation at the whole as a whole, the strategic picture, and and be very careful not to um, wrap the entire population up into a, a single um, or be distracted by the very small group of religious zealots uh, that are in that area. Oh yeah, I mean, some of the guys I talk to, they're, they're like, yeah, we've we've made you know, lifelong friends, but it's, it's sad that I can't go back because, you know, these re- religious guys that uh, take it to a very extreme uh, ruin that, that type of relationship because of the danger of going back, you know, as a civilian or as a, you know, retired veteran that, you know, would go back like, you know, say uh, to South Korea and, and, and Vietnam, like those guys have done. And, you know, it's just a, it's a terrible thing. I, I can't fathom why uh, people would, go to that level of dark to, to, you know, try and get a religious view out when, like you hit on it perfectly, the, the food, shelter, and water that people are so tr- desperately trying to give to them, to the to the countries. But, uh, so, t- t- okay, so shifting a little gears, um, uh, tell me a little bit, I know you, uh, if, if you guys had, don't know of, of Joshua's story, he has a pretty remarkable one. Uh, you were wounded in combat, and then you have you can take it from there because uh, you know I I, I can't uh, I can't uh, tell fill in the details better than you can. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background on the injury. Um, you know, really during that time frame, um, we were conducting a, a a patrol in eastern Baghdad, and an enemy sniper engaged us. Um, pretty substantial uh, weapon system that they used, and and the the bullet actually killed one of my senior non-commissioned officers first, uh, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper. You know, it entered through his uh, left arm and severed his aorta, and then exited out of his chest. and And as it did, it it ricocheted into my upper right thigh and severed my femoral artery. Um, so. Really, for the next 30 minutes or so, you know, I, I, I remained conscious. I remember every detail of that experience up until the point I took my last breath. Uh, but I ultimately went on to flatline uh, for 15 straight minutes, <laughs> nonetheless, you know, which is almost uh, it's almost impossible. Um, you know, the the medical standard where most physicians will 
call it on, on a patient is, is around the six minute mark of, of being dead. And that's because that's the point where catastrophic brain damage typically sets in. Uh, but that trauma unit, that American trauma team, uh, just didn't quit. And, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. I recovered fast. I, you know, spent some time at Walter Reed and uh, went back down range four and a half months after this injury to, to rejoin my team. So I, so I healed pretty quick. But one of the best days of my life was that trauma unit was still there uh, when I came back. And, and you know, I got to thank them in person for, you know, in flesh and blood for, for the work that they did in saving my life. And that's really important. You know, again, as, as we talk about trauma, not discriminating it and, and coming in so many different shapes and forms, you know, a lot of people forget about the trauma teams in medical units, you know, whether that's military or civilian, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, but a, a trauma unit typically gets a, a faint pulse back if they're lucky. And they send that person on to the next echelon of care and never get to see him again. Right. And, and I mean, just that trauma unit specifically in Baghdad dealt with over 350 cases that were just as severe as mine in a one year deployment. You know, so pulling off miracles every day, not seeing the results of their work, that kind of stuff can really start to uh, to emotionally impact you in, in, in major ways uh, over time. You know, it can, it can really open the door to, uh, you know, could I done something differently? Was what I done enough? It, it, am I, am I, am I effective? And those things can really open the door to, to crippling levels of guilt, uh, from an emotional standpoint for those teams. So, uh, phenomenal to be able to, to move that in the other direction for them, you know, and, and, and say thank you in the flesh and blood. Oh yeah. And I was just reading on online, a couple of your stories that like they were pulling people off the, off the fob or the base to, to donate blood for you. I mean, that's, that's just insane that they had that system in place to, to save you. You know, I'll tell you this, every step, every step of that medical evacuation process was flawless. And, you know, I probably, from the time I was shot to the time that I flatlined was roughly a half an hour. Um, and I, I, I really consider it like, uh, with the exception, obviously, of, of losing Marlon Harper that day, um, that experience was really a positive one. Uh, for, for me in a lot of ways, because I, I one, I got, I got to see my men operate in crisis and, and they just to see them and witness them perform so brilliantly in the face of uh, two catastrophic injuries uh, made me so proud, you know, to, to have the honor and the privilege to, to, to lead them. And even more so to watch the medical team execute the most well-rehearsed battle drill I have ever seen in my life. Uh, it was just phenomenal, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the level of care that I received throughout the entire medical evacuation process was, uh, you know, just, just unparalleled from the initial medic on the ground to the nurse back at Walter Reed and everyone in between. It, it was just, uh, it, it, it was very inspirational and, and, uh, you know, the reason that I got back to Baghdad so fast, it, it, it wasn't because of me, it was because of everyone surrounding me. You know. Oh yeah, and, and definitely, and and so, 
I would be remiss not to add uh, Staff Sergeant Harper into this. Why don't you share a little bit about him and, and you know what he was about and so people won't forget of who he was and what he did for our country. No, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for doing that. You know, Mar- Marlin was uh, the senior scouts of, of that platoon. And, and for those who don't know what that means, I mean, Marlin was uh, our most really our most experienced soldier. Um, he raised the majority of the people in that unit, you know, from the time they set foot in the military. So he was the rock of that platoon and uh, phenomenal NCO. He was on his sixth deployment, um, fearless in many respects, uh, refused to uh, ever let anyone else uh, take the lead on a patrol, uh, you know, because that, that was typically the most dangerous uh, vehicles to be in was the first vehicle. So, you know, he was always taking point. He was always leading from the front. Uh, and he was really the, the definition of what a, a great non-commissioned officer should be. Um, you know, I, I remember very clearly and, and vividly, you know, we were... Not an hour beforehand, I actually took the last photo of him, uh, and it's when an Iraqi mother handed him a, a small baby boy, child, uh, while we were doing a humanitarian drop, and, you know, he was, so he's holding this baby, uh, looking into the camera with a smile on his face, and that was, that was the last photo ever taken of him, and it really represents a lot of who he is. Oh, and definitely, and 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 the legacy he live, leaves. I mean, that that photo will live on with everybody that knew him, and even in the future. That you know, that's that's why we were there is to help these folks that were, you know, being oppressed by evil guys. So, uh, you know, thanks for sharing that. That that's awesome. That you just telling me that gives me chills, and I'll. Uh, he's another one to add to the list of like I know about that guy. <laughs> you know, Marlon was, uh, we actually, this, this incident happened on April 21st, uh, 2007. And, uh, you know, which the 10 year mark just happened, uh, last weekend. And in honor of that, we actually did the first reunion, uh, of that scout platoon. It was the first time we saw each other in 10 years. Uh, so we went down to, to a ranch in Texas and, and reconnected for the first time. And, uh, and Marlon was was absolutely the heart of that discussion. Um, he 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 will always be missed, and and uh, you know uh, all I can say is that reunion was was much needed. There's a lot of deep healing that took place there because of that. That that's incredible. I, I think uh, I I hope that that uh, more and more veterans of this generation realize the power of of those reunions, so to speak. I know we have Facebook and you know, text and everything, but, you know, I, I see the older guys like the Vietnam, the Korean and World War II guys that get together and, you know, they, they cut it up, they get serious, they cry, they hug, they punch each other in the shoulder and, you know, it's like, it's like they're 20 years old again. I, I love it, but I, I hope that, that uh, a lot more uh, guys of this generation uh, understand the power of that. And I think they do, but, uh, you know, there's that the easy, hey, we'll just have a Google Hangout you know, type thing. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's the power of connection, you know, which is really a central facet of the book. It's a, 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 and everything else, but it, 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 
I, I question whether there's many things out there that are more powerful than doing things like a reunion like that. You know, it, and what really inspired me more than anything else is, you know, I, I found myself for once, I didn't need to say a word. You know, I, I just sat back and watched the conversations that took place, the hugs, the tears, the everything, the laughs. And, you know, within five minutes of being there, it was like the guys were back deployed again, you know, not, not hadn't <laughs> skipped a beat in, in, a, in a decade. Nice. Uh, so, you know, maintaining that connection is, is crucial to everyone's health. Uh, long term, and I, I, I would absolutely encourage encourage that to happen at every opportunity. So yeah, so tra- kind of transferring to your to the book and the ideas. I mean, you sent me a couple uh, excerpts that you know I was I read it a couple times, not because I did not understand <laughs> it. It was just because I was like, ah, I'm bought in. It's like this is cool. <laughs> but uh, you know, y- your path was pretty incredible because you you s- became the story of the U.S. Army. So, I mean, you were being uh, traveled around the country and to different television studios, radio stations, all kinds of things to to say, hey, you know, this guy died for 15 minutes and he came back to life and, he, you know, he's a great soldier now and still a great soldier and he's soldiering through and all that. But at, at, was there at any point during that time where it just, you know, caught up with you because... You know, trauma, you, you say it, trauma isn't always what it seems. And it, was there a point where it was like, this is too much. I, I got to step away and take care of myself. <laughs> so that's the beginning of the end right there. Uh, you know, the um, <laughs> coming back to Baghdad four and a half months later, right, was actually pretty crazy. Um, you, you know, I was pulling staples out of my leg with a Gerber multi-tool, uh, not, America. <laughs> you know, two months before heading back. Right. And, and, um, you know, it was almost, it was, it was, uh, wasn't necessarily healthy and, and I wasn't forced to go back. I, everyone told me not to. And, and I, I, but I felt compelled, you know, and, and for, for years it's, you know, it's been 10 years now, but over the years, I, I, I used to always say I went back for two reasons. You know, the, the first was for my men. You know, they, they, you know, losing all the leadership in, in, in a very short span and, and still being in the worst area of Baghdad at the time was devastating for them. And I knew they needed a, a, a morale boost. Uh, and there's certainly truth to that, you know. And the other reason that I went back is, you know, for, more for myself. I, I wanted to prove to myself as an infantry officer that I could continue to perform my job and get back on the horse, so to speak. Um and there's truth to that. But over the years, you know, there is, I started to, as I, as I went, you know, one, I'll say that really growing through the process of writing this book over the last two years has been hands down the most therapeutic thing that I've ever done. Um, because I had to force myself to ask the very difficult questions and, and stay in these incredibly deep, dark, emotional places to try to find a way to put it into words that makes sense for people, right? And and one thing I always struggled with and couldn't put my finger on is why was I so compelled to go back down range so fast? You know, because there were other implications to this. You know, my mom had just got a call that her son had had basically, you know, been 
critically wounded. He wasn't going to make it through the night and get on a plane to Germany now if you you know if you have any chance of seeing him before he dies. You know, my my little sister at the time was only six years old and she couldn't understand why her big brother was going back so fast. You know, I I was um, about to be engaged to be married and that put a dagger through that relationship pretty quick. You know, so it, there there was a lot of other. You know, I've I've always been very close to my family. But for some reason back then, I, I, I couldn't even see that. You know, I, I, I was so fiercely committed and driven to go back that nothing, nothing was going to get in the way. And, and that's not exclusive to me. I, I you know, m- many other people who have been in similar situations, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to carry that, that, that guilt. Similar to what I talked to you about being at the academy uh, while, while other men were downrange and Kind of one thing we said in the in the book is, you know, as I was on that medical evacuation flight back to the United States, it's like every minute that passed wasn't a minute closer to home. It was a minute farther away from my guys, you know, and um, through that, I, I really uncovered that the answer, the answer I was so driven was was guilt. It was survivor's guilt, you know, not necessarily because, you know, and survivor's guilt is a is a term that's also misunderstood and I, I misunderstood it myself. It, it doesn't just mean, uh, the fact that I lived and Marlon did not, you know, I, I never faulted myself for his death. Uh, everything that we did that day was tactically as perfect as it could have been. Um, but at the same time, you know, he and many others are not here anymore. And I, and I am right. And, one of the most difficult things for me, uh, you know, Walter Reed, Army Medical Center, the, the, the biggest military hospital out there, is where they send the most severely wounded uh, patients coming back from downrange. Um, clinically, the care that I received was phenomenal. I wouldn't, couldn't possibly be any better. Uh, but Walter Reed's a tough place to be. You know, you're surrounded by people with devastating injuries, uh, amputations, burn victims, uh, people who are not going to make a full recovery like I did. And I was one of the very few at that hospital who were who was expected to make a full recovery. Um, and, you know, one of the images that I'll never shake is this beautiful, young, blonde, 20 something year old girl pushing around her new double amputee fiance in a wheelchair. And just wondering um, the lifelong impacts uh, that, that they're going to have to overcome as they, you know, redream their dreams and, and, and learn how to, you know, lead a new life under those conditions. So I, it, was, it was really like a guilt in my ability to heal where others couldn't, coupled with the guilt of not being downrange with my guys. And it, it was almost these two opposing forces that just pushed me to do something that was impossible, right? The distracting part of that is that I, because of that, I looked like I was a testament to resilience, right? I I looked like I had just died and come back to life and got resurrected from the dead and I was good to go. You know, let's get back on range, right? And, and, um, you know, two years later, I got pulled up to be a general's aide. Uh, the this was 2009 timeframe, and 2009 was really the time when the Department of Defense was starting to get really serious about the behavioral health challenges facing our, our service members. Uh, you know, this is post surge, uh, 
So there was a, a big spike in, in those types of things. And they asked me to go out on this speaking circuit and leverage this kind of cool life and death story to capture people's attention and then drive home the real message of reducing stigma associated with help seeking behavior. You know, and I, I did that for, you know, years. And, and you know, it was um, initially I, I, <laughs> I the, the scariest part of this is, you know, over, over the span of that first year alone, there's probably at least 100 speaking engagements uh, across the country, ranging from CNN and Oprah to the local Lions Club and, and everything in between. You know, and it was inspiring a lot of people and it was helping a lot of people heal. And, and I could I could see that. But there is something much deeper going on with me that I could not put my finger on and, and, and at the time wasn't even cognizant of. Um, until about a year into that, I found myself standing in the, the corner of a hotel room in Washington, D.C., falling into the deepest suicidal spiral I've ever been in uh, and not having a clue who I was anymore. You know, and, um, you know, <laughs> one of the messages that I had been preaching on stage for so long has been, you know, if, if you uh, reach a point like that, reach out to a friend, talk to somebody, don't stay isolated, don't be alone. And, and I suddenly found myself in a position completely unexpectedly where I had to follow my own advice. Uh, and I, I called the one guy who I... I knew, you know, just in the, I didn't believe at the time he'd be able to understand what I was going through. Um, but, but it was almost like a final act of desperation that I reached out to him. And uh, he proved me wrong very quickly. <laughs> um, he, he pulled me right out of that gutter and connected me with the first therapist that I ever, I ever worked with. So, um, and that fundamentally altered the path of my life. But it, it wasn't the end of the road. There, there would be years and years of more false starts and, and uh, misunderstandings to come before I really truly began the healing process. Yeah. And it's definitely the healing process, especially somebody trying to help to heal that person. Uh, to be honest, it, it can be awkward. Like there's, there's those awkward times and we're human. We don't know. It's like, Oh, we, we were taught everything's rosy and everybody just kind of figures out their own thing. But I mean, you, uh, we talked about it kind of off, offline and everything, but there was people around you that were pretty much grabbing, you know, the PTS and other uh, types of things you're going through by the horns and saying, hey, we're going to, we're going to meet you where you're at and we're going to help you. You know, this is um, (laughs) one of the central tenets of this, of this book, right? And it's, it's really conceptual. It doesn't require you to do anything. But one thing that I've, I've noticed uh, throughout this 10-year journey is regardless of how alone I felt, regardless of how isolated I was, uh, regardless of the emotional state that I was in, there were always people in my life uh, that were there supporting me, always, um, even if I wasn't cognizant of it at the time. And, you know, one thing that kept me alive, and I don't know why I was drawn to do this, but I I just was, uh, but, you know, it's important to stay receptive to feedback from other people. Uh, And that is a central tenet in recovery. You know, I've had 
many people throughout my life, especially throughout the last 10 years, who saw signs, warning signs in me that I couldn't even see in myself. And, uh, you know, sometimes they'd casually approach me and, and kind of start planting that seed in the back of my mind. And even if I didn't agree with them, right, even if the conversation was very short, I'd walk away from that and, and stay humble enough to know that it's possible that other people could see something in me that I'm missing in myself. And th that basically allowed the seed to be planted, even if I didn't understand it then. And what I have uncovered years later is that those seeds have started to grow because of that, that, um, those people in my life who many of whom leveraged the beauty of their own darker souls of their own horrific experiences to, to resonate with me on a very deep level. Um, you know, they knew exactly what they were saying. They knew why they were saying it. And, and they, they, they knew that it would eventually start to come to fruition, you know, and, and, and you're right. The, the conversation can be very awkward right and and part of that is because you can't force somebody to heal emotionally you know it's 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 uh but at the same time you can plant healing seeds in someone's mind you can casually approach someone and and if you do see warning signs you know even a conversation even a subtle conversation that that might not seem to have an effect could save someone's life years later Right. And, um, you know, how do you know what to say? You know, that, that, that's it's always a big question, you know, and, and, and that's that's really why I go back to the, the beauty of a darker soul. You know, uh, every one of my experiences and, and getting shot was the least of it. I, I don't even think that, you know, you know, the death of my father, the injury, combat as a whole, not just the isolated experience of getting shot. Living with an incurable disease, Crohn's disease, many, many just terrible relationship breakups and divorce. And it's, it's just been repeatedly, repeatedly being hit uh, with all of these things. And as devastating as those were, as close as they brought me to the, you know, to ending it so many times, um, the thing that kept me alive were, were the people around me. Right. But I appreciate now all of those experiences because they have added such significant depth to my life. They've, they've broadened my emotional bandwidth and, and that has allowed me to empathize with other people on a much, much deeper level very quickly and help them recover from similar experiences as well. You know, and, and that's, that's truly where I find the beauty within the darkness, uh, that's where I find uh, the greatest meaning in life is, is in our ability to help others heal. Oh, yeah. I, you know, some of the greatest conversations and moments in my life, I look back and it was, you know, whether it was somebody reaching out to me, going through any kind of uh, tough time, or it was, uh, you know, one helping out a, a family member or even a family friend. I mean, I can, I can remember not to, uh, you know, uh, but I can remember my mom, you know, I was in a pretty serious accident and I, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I was playing the young, 
young 20 year old you know fine and then she's like no you i know you and you're not fine I'm like no i'm good and then like you know a week later you're you know just sitting there breaking down crying because for i don't know what reason so but yeah i i totally i totally get what you're what you're preaching so i i like it i love it and uh you also have uh suffer productively uh, what does that mean and and how 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 can we how can we do that <laughs> yeah so uh, you know the, the best definition of therapy that i've ever received is is from a uh, a therapist out here in the bay area and uh, i was i was shadowing a group session with her once and she said you know i i, I really believe that the the role of a therapist is to help somebody suffer productively as opposed to allowing them to suffer in vain. And I believe that is, is just the cleanest, most realistic definition of what the healing process really is as a whole. You know, it, it, the healing process is, can be brutal. It, it takes uh, time, years, decades in some cases. Um, we met most of us have a tendency to uh, remain very isolated and uh, you know there's 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 a stigma around the behavioral health field obviously but you know I, I, stigma is far more complex than just um, you know people not being interested in walking through the doors of behavioral health and being labeled as, as being defective. You know, I, I really do believe that stigma is far more internally based that, um, the emotions, the deepest voids that people are experiencing, um, are, are, are so hard to put into words and to understand that, you know, it, it makes it hard to receive to find out which path to take to get treatment. You know, you, if you can't even put your finger on what's wrong, right, and, and, and the void you're experiencing, how can you possibly communicate it to somebody else? And, and that's it's a huge barrier, um, you know, and our resolution of that really lies within the, the moral injuries like shame and powerlessness and betrayal and guilt, right? But um, what I am saying is those, those deep voids, those uh, moral wounds uh, as we move forward can dominate our lives in ways that we don't even realize are happening. Um, they can impact every facet of our lives, our relationships, our, it just, it, and everything in between. And sometimes the perspective of someone else, whether that's a trained therapist or whether that's a good colleague or friend, can help... Um, at least steer you in the right direction and give you a different perspective that can put you on uh, on on the healing path more quickly, so that there is less damage done to you and, and everyone else uh, along the way. Um, you know, there's another important facet of therapy that you know it's called therapeutic resistance. Uh, and, and believe it or not, a lot of us are resistant to healing. You know, and if I if I took the most honest look at myself, I I have there's a fear uh, sometimes around healing because you're so used to being in chaotic situations, you're so used to the deep void that you're feeling. You have been exposed to the worst that humanity can throw at you, which fundamentally changes the way that you think, right? 
it's almost like, well, well, what happens if I do heal? What, what happens, what happens then? Who am I going to be? <laughs> you know, how's this going to work? And, and there's, there's a fear surrounding that. And, and for good reason, it, it shows that your, your body and your mind are functioning exactly as they should be. You know, anxiety can keep us on edge and it can protect us from danger. Depression can keep us in a state where we're not getting exposed to those situations to begin with. Right. So, so, there are reasons why our minds, our bodies, our souls respond the way that they do, right? It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It also doesn't mean that working on that and attempting to resolve it doesn't mean that you have to make it go away completely, nor should you. What you can do, though, is dial it back a little bit so that it's not dominating every facet of your life and, and crippling you in ways that you don't want it to. Uh, so suffering productively uh, is, is, is a concept that's near and dear to me at, at, at this point. Definitely. And I, I don't know, I, I see a lot of these uh, people come on and, you know, I don't, you know, I didn't serve, I didn't go to combat or anything like that. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't have severe PTS or anything like that, but do you think that with all these uh, resources and the battle buddies and everything like that, that a soldier, marine, or, or airman can fully recover from post-traumatic stress? Well, I, I, I absolutely do. You know, it, it, there's, um, I believe everybody, all of us uh, have the capacity to uh really turn post-traumatic stress and, and, and our traumatic experiences into growth opportunities uh, in our lives. Um, I, I say that with, you know, the caveat that that's not a, a, a project that, that we can typically do alone. Um, you know, I am here today, like literally alive today, only because of the people that surrounded me throughout my life and uh, who through their, their support have, uh, you know, given me just enough confidence and hope to stop myself from pulling the trigger when I had been in previous suicidal spirals. Right. Um, it took me reaching a, uh, you know, what I can call a, a limit situation, uh, a, a true absolute rock bottom where you feel like you have lost every facet of yourself and everything uh, to, to really find uh, the clarity to, to move forward. Right. And, and, I, and I, I absolutely, you know, that, that answer can be different for everyone. Right. But there's a, a couple of a uh, couple of things that are, are pretty important with that. The, the first is if, if we are not, you know, th there's some, some universal things about traumatic experiences that, uh, frankly, are, are not very well understood, even within the clinical community, are, are not very well understood across the board. Um, but it's, it's, we have to be operating at the level of moral wounds, right, when, when we discuss these experiences. We have to be uncovering the presence of shame and guilt and powerlessness and betrayal uh, within these experiences, and all of us have been exposed to that uh, to varying degrees th throughout throughout our lives, right? 
once we pin that down, we can really start to kind of face our demons in the eye and understand what their weakness is. And, and that's when we can really start to uh, acquire a new perspective, uh, leverage it to our advantage and, and make meaning of that suffering right, moving forward. Um, so, so absolutely uh, is, is your answer. I believe anyone, anyone uh, can, can reach that point. Um, but I'm, I'm not uh, here to tell you that that's, that's an easy journey. And I, I recognize that uh, many of your listeners right now might be experiencing emotional voids that are so deep that, that this, this message, you know, seems very foreign to them uh, and, and hopeless. Right? So I, I just want to tell you that uh, in my weakest moments, in the moments where uh, I, I truly believed that there was nothing left, uh, that no one could possibly understand the depths of my pain. Uh, there is always someone in my life who proved me wrong. And I, I, I would uh, encourage you to reach out and, and build that network and start suffering productively today. Um, you know, and just a caveat that, you know, I, <laughs> some of us carry some guilt too. You know, we, we, we feel like, uh, you know, when I was in my weakest moments, I would almost hesitate to reach out to people because I didn't want to bother them. You know, I didn't want to dump my problems on somebody else. And, and, and one, I found that, you know, people are, are more than willing uh, and even appreciative of you being able to be so vulnerable with them, uh, more than willing to help you through that experience. And they want you to. They'd be more insulted if you didn't call, right? But to kind of overcome that, like I never called just one person. I would call about 10 you know, I, you know, I'd call one person I've talked to him for an hour. I'd, I'd, I'd be right on the phone talking to the next one and then the next one. And, and, and doing that for a couple of days in some cases would at least get me out of the danger zone, <laughs> you know. So, so build out your network now. Find out who those people are. And sometimes in our, our weakest moments, it, it takes uh, placing blind trust and people that we we might not know uh, in order to, to heal. So I, I just ask you to trust in the power of connection. What have you got to lose, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, that whole – I know there, people mean nice and everything on, on Facebook. They're like the 22 push-up a day, you know, video and all that. And I know it kind of brings awareness and it's – it's you know social media and all that but to me you hit it on the head it's like let's if somebody's calling you and they're talking to you for a longer period of time or there's some triggers that are going off in your head there's something going on that you know like like we've said we, you got to grab it by the horns and figure this out and and pull them out of this this place so that that you know they don't harm themselves they don't uh, we don't have them anymore that would be the tragic thing and so i I uh, I'm more of the let's get let's get meeting let's get together let's call each other let's figure this out and I I I love what you're you're doing uh, Joshua and and how you're just helping people you know figure this out and even uh, civilians I mean this is, this book is for everybody right <laughs> that's definitely the intent you know I I um, I never wanted to write a book about a war story. Um, I never wanted to focus just on this aspect of 
this near-death experience. You know, I could have, but it, it's that I wanted to find a way to leverage that for a much greater purpose. You know, and and um, I, I found that the most overlooked, you know, the, the the overarching purpose of the book, more than anything else, is to uh, give people permission to recognize and validate the true source of their pain regardless of, of uh, what the source of that pain is. You know, and like I said, trauma does not discriminate and it, it, it comes in, in many shapes and forms. Um, you know, and there's a lot of commonalities between traumatic experiences when we look at them through the lens of, of, of moral wounds. Uh, so, so this book is, is absolutely intended to uh, resonate with, with uh, really just about anyone. Uh, so, yeah. And kind of to, to, you know, complete the full circle, if you will. I mean, I could talk with you for, you know, hours. This is just fascinating. And I know. Like we'll talk thing. Yeah, it's a good talk. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk offline. But uh, but for the listeners, let's just close this thing up. Uh, what what are some things that that people that are approaching somebody, you know, with the darker soul and, and all that, that can ask questions? What kind of questions that they, should they ask? What You know, how how vulnerable should they, uh, you know, get with people? You know, that, that's, that's kind of always the, the toughest question to answer broadly, right? Because uh, everything is so situationally no dependent. <laughs> What's that? I said no one size fits all. You know, they're all different. Right. Yeah, every, everyone's different. And I, I understand that that can be um, very intimidating to some. You know, you might not know what to say and you might not know how to react. Just know more than anything else that sometimes you don't even need to say anything, right? Sometimes finding a way to just demonstrate to an individual that you genuinely care about them is the most important thing in removing the sense of isolation that uh, is crippling them. And, you know, as you... uh, encounter situations like this whether it's for yourself or or you know people people that you encounter you know there are more commonalities every everybody everyone experiences emotional trauma of varying degrees throughout our lifetimes everyone it's not just veterans right not at all and what i would tell you is you know you can probably resonate on a much deeper level than you than you might think if if you simply um, look at things through a different lens. You know, look at it through the lens of 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 guilt and shame, which which is things that all of us have experienced at one point or another. You know, powerlessness and betrayal, and, and just being in the presence of that person. Um, sometimes not leaving their side, right? If that's what's needed, sometimes you do need to give them space, right? And it's kind of a thing where you've got to play it by ear, but just know that uh, demonstrating that you genuinely and sincerely care about them is, is usually step number one. Definitely. It's a, it's a dance like, uh, that country singer, John Michael Montgomery, life's a dance. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It sure is. Right. So fi- sure is. finally, uh, uh, tell me, well, not finally, but, you know, to close it up, uh, let's talk some wares. Where can we get this book? And then you have a, a special cause that you're donating to 
the pre-order sales. Is that correct? Or uh, fill me in. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we, we want to use this book for a, a great purpose. And, um, so all, all pre-orders and all sales conducted during the first week, uh, 100% of the proceeds of that will be donated to the Integrated Recovery Foundation, which is a nonprofit treatment center standing up in Southern California that is dedicated to treating women veterans who were sexually assaulted while on military service. Uh, which is a, a just a massive, massive uh, social problem that we're facing right now. You know, the, the um, sexual assault and, and rape is one of the most devastating forms of trauma uh, that, that's out there, um, really because of the presence of those deep moral wounds, the shame and the guilt and the powerlessness that goes with it. What, what's somewhat you, unique um, about military culture is that it really brings, you know, and, and most, most sexual assaults and rapes are, are conducted by people that uh, the victim knows. Uh, and that's, that's very similar in, in the military aspect where, where when that happens and, and this, this element of betrayal is injected into the situation, it, it makes the trauma just that much more devastating and complex. Uh, so right now, you know, most of the 22 a day are, are, are women. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ron Gellis is a, a psychologist. He's the oldest uh, competitor at the CrossFit Games. He's, he's an awesome guy. Uh, he's been standing up treatment centers his whole life. And, and this, is, uh, this is what he feels he was put on earth here to do. Uh, so, so know that, uh, you know, if you purchase this book, that, that, that money, you know, I, I encourage you to do it now because that, you know, we want to prop that organization up and help as many people as possible. Oh yeah. That, uh, that's a, that's a great cause. Uh, Joshua, I, I, I like it. I hope we can get a lot of sales and a lot of healing going on with these, uh, these women. I, I, I hate hearing the stories about, about these, uh, women that go in to serve our country and then they, they get, uh, betrayed by, you know, a, uh, superior or one of their peers. It's it's just a sad thing. So, uh, so finally, uh, well, oh, go ahead. You know, yeah. Sorry, if um, you know, to to pick that up, I didn't mention this, but uh, you know, just darkersouls.com, com, uh, and you can sign up for the the mailing list, and, and it links to Amazon right there where you can pre-order the book. And There'll also be a lot of other resources on there as, as it pertains to trauma as well. So darkersouls.com is where you can pick that up too. Well, Joshua, this was a, a great time to, to talk and, and get it, get it recorded for a podcast. And, and, you know, I, I, I would be, a, uh, not to share the, um, this story, but you know, we were sharing it, uh, offline, but I actually flatlined too. So we, you know, <laughs> two dudes that died are doing a podcast. So this is, this is, this is pretty fun. Right on. <laughs> yeah. I told you you're, you're a member of the club now, man. it's the, the, I died and came back to life club. So, you know, welcome to the team. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We should get like a patch or something and, and, and have a secret handshake or some sort. We'll have to do that. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll get that patch going. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to the Valor podcast. Make sure to like us on Facebook and you can subscribe on iTunes and Google play or any podcast management app. 
visit our webpage at thevalorpodcast.com. Finally, find your mission. There are many veteran organizations, nonprofits, and veterans needing your help. I promise you'll make some great friends and uh, meet them in the middle. You'll have a, a great time uh, making a new friend if uh, you can just sit down and listen and share ideas. Have a great week. <laughs>